Would you open your Bibles, please, to 2 Samuel chapter 15. I've bitten off a bit more than I can chew this morning. Five chapters of text. I hope you got my email on Friday and read through those. Uh, 4,200 words as I counted them. I do not have time to cover all of them, but hope that you will at least feel the weight of this word as it intersects with your world and your life. The Lord's Prayer teaches us to pray, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Do you pray that prayer regularly? I hope that you do. But do you know what you're getting yourself into when you pray that prayer? We are often thinking of justice when we pray for God's kingdom to come and for His will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And this is a well-founded thing to do for God promises, as we said last week, that He will one day put this world to its rights. And in light of that promise, we should plead the promises of God. We should cry out with the psalmist, How long, O Lord? We should desire justice. We should desire this world to be put to its rights. But when did Jesus himself first pray this prayer? Was it not in the Garden of Gethsemane? Was it not in the crucible, in the olive oil press? Father, he prayed, if you were willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And we read in Luke that as he prayed, he was in great agony. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Giving yourself up to the will of God, friends, is not always smooth sailing, is it? God's will ultimately leads to triumph. Amen? But in the meantime, it often involves tears. Are you ready for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven? In our passage this morning, we find David surrendering to the Lord's will on more than one occasion. A man who has been marked by so many failures in the previous chapters is now entrusting himself to God. But the whole passage is framed by David's tears. At the beginning of the passage, we are told two times that he is weeping. And two times again at the end of the passage we find him weeping. At the beginning, David's fleeing Jerusalem. He's running from Absalom, and he weeps as he goes. At the end, Absalom is defeated, and David weeps 
over his death. David's flight from Jerusalem in this chapter stands in stark contrast to the day he came into Jerusalem. David once walked the trail of triumph into Jerusalem. He now walks the trail of tears out of Jerusalem. David's suffering is different from Jesus' suffering in that Jesus was without sin. He was suffering in order to bear our sins. Whereas David is suffering for his own sins. But I believe that both of these anointed kings were suffering according to the will of God. And both suffering for a very important purpose. Jesus for our salvation. David for his sanctification. You see, David is at his best in Samuel when he is on the run. As David ran from Saul, God used that suffering to raise up his king. And now, as he runs from Absalom, God uses his suffering to restore his king. Apparently, friends, the Lord thinks that we grow best in the desert as counterintuitive as that may seem. He thinks that we grow best even when there is much cause for weeping. So what can we learn about our own growth is we look at the slow progress and growth that David is making in this passage as he flees from Absalom. Paul says that it is God's will for our lives. He tells us what God's will for our lives is. It is our sanctification. My study has led me to see three counterintuitive lessons about God's will for our lives, especially about God's will as we walk the trail of tears. Three lessons that are answers to three questions that we are prone to ask or will be forced to ask as we live our lives in the valley. I will not be reading any one portion of Scripture this morning, but I would invite you to keep your Bibles open and to follow along. We'll be looking at a number of verses together as we trace the story. Let's begin with my first question and answer. Here's the question. Who should we follow when everything is falling apart? And here's the answer. It's safer to follow the weeping one than the winning one. It's safer to follow the weeping one than the winning one. Last week, we saw that David was passive with Absalom. Absalom had killed Tamar for raping his sister. Absalom took matters into his own hands because his father David did nothing when Amnon violated Tamar. And he did nothing then again when Absalom killed Amnon. 
And as Joab feared, this paved the way for Absalom to stage a coup. David's passivity made possible Absalom's conspiracy. We find that conspiracy in the first 12 verses of chapter 15. Then, beginning in verse 13, we trace David's sad flight from Jerusalem. And as we follow this narrative, in these beginning verses and chapters, we see a contrast between two kings. Similar to the contrast we saw last time David was in the wilderness, a contrast between him and Saul. Here, a contrast between David and Absalom. One winning the other weeping. But it's important to remember that the one who is winning in the first stage of this passage is the one who is usurping the throne of God's king. And the one who is weeping remains, in spite of his sin, God's anointed king. So when everything's falling apart, who will you follow? The weak one or the one that poses with strength? The way Absalom sets the stage for his coup is through politics that look very much like the politics in our day. We learned last week, chapter 14, verse 25, that there is no one in all of Israel more praised for his handsomeness than Absalom. But it wasn't just his good looks that made him a good candidate to become a successful politician. He also had a lot of flair. Look at verse 1. We read that he got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. Now bear in mind, chariots weren't really that useful in the mountainous terrain around Jerusalem for battle. But he certainly looked the part. He had pomp. But not only did he have pomp, he also did, like all good politicians, he made empty promises to the people. Whenever people came to the city to present the king with a dispute, Absalom would take them aside. Look at verse 3. He would say to him, See, your claims are good and right, but there's no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, Oh, that I were judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or a cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. David's just up in the Oval Office. I'm a man of the people on the street. And if all of his pomp and all of his empty promises, they work. Look at verse 6. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Then he lied to his father David, another great political move, by the way. We've got it all. Good looks, pomp, empty promises, and now lies. He told him he had to go to Hebron to fulfill a vow that he had made to the Lord. And David, he's making progress, but he hasn't arrived yet. He still takes the line, as he has done so many times before. He lets him go. 
Then Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all of the land to the men who he had won over to his side, look at verse 10, by telling them, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king in Hebron. This also worked. Do you see? Absalom is winning. Look at verse 12. And the conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. So you have people with Absalom. That's a key word. But there's also going to be people with David. Absalom is winning. What a contrast to David. As he hears this news about Absalom's rebellion, he flees the city. Look at verse 14. He said to his servants, Arise, let us flee, for else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly and bring down ruin on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. These words subtly, I believe, reveal why David is weeping here, and they reveal why he will be weeping at the end of the story as well. That word ruin and the word sword. The word ruin could be translated as evil. So what's happening here? God is fulfilling the word that he spoke to David through the prophet Nathan in chapter 12, verses 10 and 11. Evil will rise up from your own house, and the sword will never depart from your house. God's bringing consequences on David for his sin. And so David is weeping. But God is doing something more, friends. He is also disciplining the son that he loves. He is bringing about his sanctification. It's interesting to follow David's trail of tears. Let's look at these two instances where we see he is weeping. Look at verse 23. And all of the land wept as all the people passed by. And the king crossed the brook Kidron, and all the people passed on toward the wilderness. Then look at the second appearance of this word in verse 30. But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. Do you notice a pattern here? This is the same path that Jesus himself walked out of Jerusalem, through the Kidron Valley, and up to the Mount of Olives, where he prayed that the Lord's will would be done. At the Mount of Olives, Jesus was also arrested as Judas betrayed him with a kiss. Notice in verse 31 of chapter 15, David was told, Ahithophel is also among the conspirators with Absalom. His trusted advisor had betrayed him just like Judas. The parallels are here for us to see. David was suffering for his sins, 
but he was still God's anointed king. And this tight connection with Jesus' own flight from Jerusalem, I believe, gives us permission to draw certain parallels between Jesus and David. Both are in exile, both are suffering, and both, this is the point I want to drive home, are encountering very different responses to being despised and rejected. Everything was falling apart. The wheels were coming off. How would the people in David's kingdom respond? Would they follow Absalom? Like so many had done in verses 1 to 12. Would they root for the winner? Or would they follow David, the weeping one? As David walks the trail of tears, he encounters five people along the way. Similar to Jesus, who encountered so many people along the way. Some of them decide at the risk of their lives to follow the weeping one. Some are not willing to take that risk. For the sake of time, I want to highlight simply one from each group. The first one to follow David is Ittai. We see him in verse 19. He's a Gentile who's already in exile from his own country. And David encourages him to stay in Jerusalem so that he won't be a double exile. But in verse 21, look at what Ittai says to David. As the Lord lives, and as my Lord the King lives, wherever my Lord the King shall be, whether for death or for life, there also will your servant be. What does that sound like? (laughs) This faith of Ittai sounds very much like the faith of another Gentile, Ruth, David's grandmother. Ittai sees that David is the Lord's anointed king, so he will follow him no matter what. We see the same devotion in the next two people, Abathar and Zadok, who are together, and then Hushai. But for the sake of time, I want to move on to somebody who doesn't follow David. The fourth person that David encounters is Ziba. That's in chapter 16, verses 1 to 4. Ziba is Mephibosheth's servant. He comes out to David with gifts, saying that Mephibosheth has betrayed David, who had shown him so much kindness. And he says that he, Ziba, will be loyal to David. Look at verse 4. I pay homage. Let me ever find favor in your sight, my lord the king. But as we'll see later, he's lying. Mephibosheth has not abandoned his loyalty to David. What is Ziba doing? He is doing what so many in the church today do. He is hedging his bets. Notice he never says, like the other three before him, I want to follow you, David. No, what he is saying secretly is that if things go well with Absalom, I'll stay with him. If things fall apart with Absalom, 
I will have gained your favor, and so I will then be able to come over to your side. Fire insurance. In the early 90s, I was a Cowboys fan. Who wouldn't be? They had Troy Aikman, Emmitt Smith, Michael Irvin, won three Super Bowls during my time in high school and the freshman year of college. But now the Chiefs are winning. I don't watch the Cowboys anymore. I watch the Chiefs. What about you? Being a fair-weather fan may work well for football, but we're not talking about the Chiefs' kingdom. We're talking about the kingdom of God. God's anointed one weeps now, but eventually the anointed one wins. That's the way of the kingdom. That's the way God's will works. It ends in triumph. But it begins with tears. Jesus took up a cross and he calls all who would follow him to identify with his suffering. To take up their cross and to follow him. Each of the men who followed David followed him at great cost. But they believed that he was God's man. And they would be safer with the weeping one than they would be with the one who was winning at that time. And they were right. What about you? Are you willing to endure God's will of suffering now as you wait for Christ's future victory? Now let's move on to my second question. How do we trust the Lord when we're facing trouble? So who do we follow when things are falling apart But who do we trust, and how do we trust specifically when we're facing trouble? Here's the answer. Trusting the Lord involves prayer and action. Prayer and action. David is clearly in trouble, and he's given many opportunities as he walks this path to do like Absalom has done. To take matters into his own hands. When he encounters Abathar and Zadok in chapter 15, verse 24. They brought the ark with them. Remember when we saw the ark earlier in 1 Samuel, chapters 4 to 6? They were trying to use the ark to secure God's favor. But how does David respond? He says, take the ark back to Jerusalem because that's where the Lord ordained that it would remain. In verse 28, he says, no, verse 25 and 26, he says, carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am, let him do to me what seems good to him. David is trusting himself to the Lord. But notice, he doesn't stop there. In verse 28, he tells Zadok to go back into the city with his two sons. He says, see, I will wait at the fords of the wilderness until word comes from you 
to inform me. What's going on here? He's trusting the Lord. Whatever the Lord thinks is best, I'll go with that. I'm not going to try to manipulate God. But then what does he do? He sends these two priests back into Jerusalem as spies. He's trusting God and he's taking action. We see something similar when David encounters Hushai. In verse 31, David hears that Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And what does David do? He prays, O Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. So trusting the Lord involves prayer. But notice, he doesn't stop with praying. As he gets up to the top of the Mount of Olives, verse 32, he encounters Hushai. And Hushai also wants to follow after David. But David has the wherewithal to see, I just prayed that the Lord would thwart the plans of Ahithophel, and now Hushai's here. Maybe that's an answer to my prayer. And so what he does is he sends Hushai back to Jerusalem to also serve as a spy. He trusts God, but he also takes action. This is not a contradiction, and it is a lesson for us when we are in trouble. It's actually not uncommon for the Lord to answer our prayers through our actions. And that's what God does in the many verses that follow. The first part of chapter 16, David trusts God, he prays, and he comes up with a plan. Then beginning in chapter 16, verse 15, all the way through chapter 18, verse 18, all the way through there, that plan is put into place, and we see the Lord answering the prayer through the plan. When Absalom comes to Jerusalem, he already has Ahithophel with him. I'm just going to try to briefly show you how this works. But he also meets Hushai. And Hushai convinces him that he's on the Lord's side. That's in verses 16 to 19. So Absalom, now he has two counselors. And he seeks the counsel of both. First, Ahithophel, then Hushai. Ahithophel, chapter 16, verses 20 to 23, gives his first piece of advice. He tells Absalom to go into his father's concubines. This will make the breach between David and Absalom complete. Then beginning in chapter 17, he gives him military advice. I want you to catch what his advice is. It's really simple, really simple. His advice is to put together a relatively small army and to strike quickly. That's verse 1. Then he tells, he says, Absalom's not to lead the charge. Ahithophel, I will go out in the front. Then thirdly, he tells him to aim mainly for David to kill as few people as possible so that they could bring as many of the people back to them as possible. That's Ahithophel's counsel. Hushai, his advice is the exact opposite. He says, let's wait a little while and put together a bigger army. He says, Absalom, you should most certainly lead the charge so that you can get the glory. And let's go ahead and kill as many people as possible. 
What counsel was taken? Let's look at verse 4. We read, The advice of Ahithophel seemed right in the eyes of Absalom and all the elders. Then in verse 14, after Hushai speaks, we read, And Absalom and all of the men of Israel said, The counsel of Hushai the archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. Why? For the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. In other words, the Lord's will was to bring down the traitor Ahithophel and to bring down the rebel Absalom. But get this. The Lord used David's prayer and then David's plan to accomplish that purpose. I want you to notice something else here that I find extremely interesting. Earlier in chapter 16, verse 23, after Ahithophel gives his counsel, we read, Now in those days the counsel that Ahithophel gave was as if one consulted the word of God. Later in chapter 17, verse 23, we see that Ahithophel, like Judas after him, hanged himself because his counsel wasn't followed. He saw the writing on the wall. He knew he was a dead man. But in an ironic way, his counsel was followed. The good counsel of Ahithophel was followed, and it was like the word of God. Sure, Absalom rejected the counsel, but get this, Hushai used it. Hushai used Ahithophel's counsel. He simply used it for the other team. Hushai put Ahithophel's plan into play for David's army. They struck quick. They struck with a small army. They didn't let David lead the army, and they were victorious. Just as Absalom's army would have been had he followed Ahithophel's counsel. But it was the Lord's will to thwart his counsel and to bring down Absalom. You can read all about this in the first part of chapter 18. But for now, I simply want to reiterate the point. When we're in trouble, the way we trust the Lord is to pray, but it can also involve human action. Maybe you're here this morning and you're facing financial troubles. Pray. May that be the first thing that you do. Pray early and pray often. But you may also look for ways to cut spending or maybe to increase your earning or to seek the wise counsel of somebody that can help you in the situation, the trouble that you find yourself in. Suppose that you were here this morning and you were struggling with sexual sin. By all means, pray early and often. But you may also want to join that men's group that Jim Logan mentioned at the members meeting on Sunday night or some other type of group 
You may also want to seek out the counsel of one of your pastors or your small group leader. I could multiply answers, but you get the point. The point I am making is not, please hear me, God helps those who help themselves. It's simply to say that God often uses human means to get His work done. How will you grow in sanctification in times of trouble? Paul says this, work out your own salvation, not your justification, but the overall process of sanctification. Work out your own salvation with fear and with trembling, for it is He, God, who works in you both to will and to do according to His good pleasure. Now for our final question. How should we respond to the Lord's judgment? There's nothing that is much more troubling to our minds than the reality of God's judgment. How should we respond? And here's the answer. It's right to rejoice in justice and to long for mercy. It's right to rejoice in justice and to long for mercy. Earlier I mentioned that when David was in trouble, he prayed. He prayed that God would thwart the counsel of Ahithophel. But we know, as Amy told us earlier in the service, that was not the only prayer that he prayed as he ran from Absalom. Psalm 3 records another prayer that David made on that day. He prayed, Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek, you break the teeth of the wicked, salvation belongs to the Lord, your blessing be on your people. In the battle with Absalom and his army, God answered this prayer. God saved David from his enemy. God struck Absalom on the cheek. He broke the teeth out of his mouth. David prayed for justice. But he didn't want the prayer to be answered in this way. He didn't want Absalom to die. He gave instructions for the battle in chapter 18, verse 5. He told Joab to deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. He wanted justice in Psalm 3. He wanted justice for Ahithophel, but he also wanted mercy for his son. But as we know, his counsel will not be effective, for it was the Lord's will to bring harm upon Absalom, and that's what happened. Joab, as usual, didn't follow instructions very well. When he had the chance to spare Absalom's life, he took his life. There was a man who found Absalom hanging in a tree by his beautiful hair, ironically, and that man reminded Absalom of David's instructions, but Joab didn't hear them. 
We read in verses 14 and 15 of chapter 18. Joab said, I will not waste time like this with you. And he took three javelins in his hand and thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the oak. And ten young men, Joab's armor bearers, surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. Beginning in verse 19 through the end of the chapter, it's this long story of how the news of the battle came to David. Two people made a report. The first is Ahimaaz. That's in verse 28. As he reports to David, he says this. I want you to notice the language. Blessed be the Lord your God who has delivered up the men who raised their hand against the Lord my king. In other words, the Lord has answered your prayers, David. But he didn't tell him that Absalom had been killed. The next messenger does, the Cushite. When he arrives with the news, he says in verse 31, Good news for my lord the king, for the Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all those who rose up against you. Again, the Lord has answered your prayer, David. But David presses like he did before. What about the young man? Absalom, to which the Cushite gives the right answer. May the enemies of my Lord the King and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. David did not see this as good news. In verse 33, we read, And the king was deeply moved and went into the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, O my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would that I had died instead of you, O Absalom, my son, my son. Who is giving the right response to the news of Absalom's death? There are clearly two responses. Everybody in the story but David sees this as a reason to rejoice. God has answered their prayers and delivered David, the anointed king, and the people of the king from their enemies. They see God's judgment on the anointed king's enemies as gospel. But it's not gospel for David. He started out weeping, and now as the story ends, we find him weeping again. He didn't like the way God answered his prayer. He was a beggar, but he also wanted to be a chooser. Which of these two responses are the right response when God brings judgment on our enemies? When God brings judgment on the enemies of the Lord's anointed? I want to suggest that both responses contain the answer. 
It's certainly right to rejoice when the Lord saves us. And did you know that that salvation involves bringing judgment on all of God's enemies? But I think it's also right to grieve when we face up to judgment. For David, Absalom's death was a reminder of his own sin. He knew it was his sin that led to the fateful day of Absalom's death. His guilt led him to grieve. And there is something appropriate in that. But even more than that, David truly wanted mercy for Absalom. And I believe there is something right in that as well. But how is it possible to have both God's justice and God's mercy. God is a righteous God. He must deal with sin and rebellion against him and against his anointed king. And Absalom, friends, by way of warning, is a picture of what happens to everyone who rebels against God and rejects his anointed king. But in Christ, The thing David said he would have rather have had happen, happened. Would that I have died in place of my son. In Christ, God is able to be both just and merciful. For on the cross, the justice of God is satisfied and the mercy of God is extended to all who believe on Jesus. Romans 5 puts it this way. Let this sink in, friends. This is the only resolution of the tension we feel in this passage. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore, we have been justified, there's justice, by His blood, how much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. It was too late for Absalom to be reconciled to God and to David. But it's not too late for you. David's trip to the Mount of Olives and the events that followed did nothing to save Absalom, but Jesus' trip out of Jerusalem through the Kidron Valley to the Mount of Olives and the events that followed after that are sufficient to satisfy both the justice of God and extend the mercy of God to you. It's right to rejoice in God's justice and judgment, but also to long for God's mercy. God's will will be done. He will bring judgment, but His will is also to save everyone for whom Christ died.
we should pray for both. God used the trail of tears to sanctify David. He can use your trials, your valley as well to sanctify you. And that's what we should pray that he would do as we walk this path. Would you pray with me? Father, as the hymn that we sang earlier said, behind a frowning providence, you hide your smiling face. Father, I pray that you would help us to pray for your will to be done, looking forward to the time when all things will be made right, but that you would also help us to have your right perspective on the suffering and the difficulties in this life as we wait for that day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand and sing with us as we remind each other that God is our hope in times of trouble.